Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. You can pray for me. We're going to try to do something I'm not real good at. You know me. I love details. I love to take one verse and preach for, you know, eight weeks on a verse. Well, we're going to try, I'm going to try to do a high scanning sermon this morning. So you got if you see me lighting, starting to stay too much, wave at me, tell me, move on, we got to go. So, um, but let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. I thank you, Lord, that you are the source of everything that we have. You are the source of, of every blessing, of every um, trait. You have given us, created us, and made us to be what we are today. And I thank you, Father, that, that we um, need to do our best to conform ourselves to the image that you've put on the inside of us. And I'm believing, Father, that as we approach your word, that you are going to give us revelation as to how to go about living out the, the truth and the reality of everything you've put on the inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the, the, the title, and I gave you all some homework last week. How many of you did your homework? Okay, a few hands. Uh, you were supposed to go back and read at least Romans 5 and 6 and then all of Ephesians, and we're not going to do a lot in Ephesians today. We are going to do some, but I wanted you to, I'll be honest with you, Ephesians is someplace where you could, you could camp, should camp probably for the rest of your life. There's so, meat in, so much meat in Ephesians. It's unbelievable. But I want to go back, and this is the question that, that I want to address today, the question that I want us to look at and at least try to get a start of an answer because I don't know that it's ever completely answerable. This is my question. If I'm dead to sin, and we're going to look here in a minute, Paul says that in Romans 6, that I am dead to sin, why do I still sin so much? Because that is a question. And you, you all know me, and I, I, I preach grace pretty hard, and <clears throat> I've, I've been accused of, of uh, believing in once saved, always saved. And, and I've had people on both sides of that issue come after me hard. And, um, and I've thought about it a lot. That, that has always been a puzzlement to me. There are, there are a few issues in theology that they are go to war, somebody's going to shoot you over issues. A lot of things people will just let go, they don't care. But there are three or four, and this is one of them, that once saved, always saved, that'll get you shot in some camps. And it'll get you hung. If they don't shoot you, they'll hang you. And sometimes they'll shoot you, then hang you. And if you don't die quick enough, they'll take you off, shoot you again, and hang you again. It's... Um, but because of that, I have thought, why? what is it about this issue that just makes people crazy? And it does. It makes people crazy. And it, it finally dawned on me, and this may not be all of it, but this is a big part of it. It comes down to the fact, and this is a fact, God has called us to holy living. He has called us to live a holy life. The problem is, I don't know a lot of Christians that are really, really successful at living that holy life. And people look for reasons. They look for 
sometimes excuses, and for a lot of people, a, a subset. Once saved, always saved gives them an excuse to live any way they want to live. I'm saved, I can't lose my salvation, I don't care. If I live holy, fine, I'm going to heaven. If I don't live holy, fine, I'm going to heaven. And there are people on the other side that run off on the other ditch and say, well, I don't believe in one saved, always saved. In fact, I believe that you, you live unholy enough, you're going to lose your salvation, and you'll end up going to hell. I don't care if you were genuinely saved at one side, at one time. <clears throat> but it all comes down to the issue of how do you live your life. Well, now, in general, I have one huge response. How I live my life, and I'll just use me personally, how I live my life is between me and God. How you live your life is between you and God, and it's none of my business. And if I was really free, I'd use some, some choice words there. It's none of my blankety-blank business. And I need to stay out. And I'll tell you, there's only one person who has any say in how you live your life. Well, there's a couple. There is your spouse, because it will directly affect them. And there, are your, there is your spiritual leadership, your pastor, someone else that you give authority to in your life, which makes it is really important who you give authority in your life to. But those people should be able to speak into your life if your life doesn't line up with how God says you ought to live your life. And when it comes right down to it, how we should be living our life should be exactly the way Jesus lived his life, in that perfection. Well, guess what? You can't do that. So where is that boundary? And this is the problem I've had with the people that are in the other ditch where if I sin enough, I'm going to lose my salvation. My question to them usually comes back to, and I've got hard questions for the one saved, always saved crowd too. But my question comes, well, how do I know when I've crossed that line where I've sinned enough, now I've lost my salvation? Well, you'll know. Well, so then do I need to get born again again? Yes, you do. Well, now wait a minute. Hebrews says that, you know, once you've been born again and you lose your salvation, there's no renewing. So I have a kind of a quasi line out here where if I sin enough, eventually I'll lose my salvation and I can't come back. That's my problem with you can sin enough to lose your salvation. With that said, that's the controversy that I'm trying to deal with here. If I'm dead to sin, why am I sinning so much? What is the problem with all of us living out this holy walk that God's called us to live? And He has called us to walk out a holy life. Well, it comes down, first of all, we just have to go to the Scriptures. And let's go, and I'm, I'm going to go through this really quick here. Romans, and let me just... Well, if you want to go somewhere, um, um, and you'll have to go... Just go, first of all, to Romans 3.23. But I'm going to start. Romans, the book of Romans, is Paul's introduction of his theology. Not his, him as a man, but his theology. He had never been to Rome, and he was going to Rome. So he wrote this letter to the Roman church, and basically this letter says, Hi, I'm Paul. This is what I believe. 
So the book of Romans, at least in my mind, and I, I, if somebody has a different opinion, I wouldn't argue it. I, I, I really don't care. But in my mind, the book of Romans gives the most complete overall picture of Paul's theology, what Paul believes. The first chapter, especially the first 15, 15 verses, just a general introduction. Hi, I'm Paul. This is who I am. Names a few things. Verse 16 and 17, Paul gives probably, in my opinion, the best two-verse synopsis of what the gospel is. And I'll, I'll just read that, even though I told you not to go there. In, in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God resulting in salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. And in this gospel, God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That last little phrase there, the just shall live by faith, Paul hearkens back to Habakkuk 2.4. So Paul, right there, he gives us a real quick synopsis of what it means to, what the gospel of Christ is, but he also gives you a very huge key to all theology. He bases his theology on the Word. Now he's writing the Word. He's writing Scripture. And yet he's referring back to scripture that's already authoritative. Authoritative. Yeah. That word. Authoritative. Thank you. Paul's not saying, now he does say this occasionally, but here Paul's not saying, this is God's will because God told me this is his will and I'm telling you this is God's will. No, Paul says this is the gospel of Christ because in Habakkuk 2.4, God said the just shall live by faith and this is what that means. Paul bases his authority on scriptural authority. That is a pattern you can never depart from. Anything in your life that you cannot go to the Word and find scriptural authority to do what you are doing, you are on thin ice and you are skating for a bruising, I'm telling you. The Word is your anchor. It is your support. It is your foundation. And you cannot depart very far from the Word or you will get in trouble. Paul did it for everything he did and in particular for everything he wrote. Amen? Then, the rest of chapter 1, Paul laid out all of the sins of the Gentiles and said, all of this stuff is deserving of the judgment of God. Chapter 2 and 3, he goes on and he starts talking about the Jews. You Jews, you, you, you condemn everything these Gentiles are doing. I'm telling you, just as bad and maybe worse. But he culminates that in chapter 3, verse 23, where he sums it all up and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He just says, You want to know, there, you think there's a problem? There is a problem. The, 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 the Gentiles are screwed up and sinful and they are a mess. And you Jews, you're just as bad. You're all in the same pot together and you're all going to boil together. You have all sinned and you're all very short of the glory of God. And God, for all rights, for all, all intents and purposes, has the right to say, forget you, I'm just going to let you all go to hell. He has that right. It, it would be perfectly just for him to do that. Chapter 4, Paul goes back and he looks at the life of Abraham. And he says, here's your example. Abraham lived by faith. And then you come to um, 
chapter 5, the very first verse, he says, Therefore, hearkening back to Abraham, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, look back at Abraham. Abraham got justified by his faith in what God said. I'm telling you, that's how you have to get justified too. You have to go back to what God said about you. Abraham had a little bit of advantage. When God needed to get a hold of Abraham, he walked up and said, Abraham, excuse me, you are, um, well, let's just change your name. Not Abraham anymore, it's Abraham. See all those stars? That's your descendants. See all that sand? That was all your descendants. You're the father of many nations. And I'm going to justify the entire earth through you, face to face. But let me tell you what, Abraham had a rough road to walk. It took that to keep Abraham straight. In fact, even with that, Abraham didn't stay particularly straight all the time. But God gave us his word. He told us about Abraham. He said, and in the same way, since Abraham did this, you can be justified by faith the same way. He says, skip on to chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Tells me right there, knowledge requires action. God gives you knowledge of something. He expects you to act on it. And if you don't act on it, He will hold you responsible for it nonetheless. You walk into my kitchen and I tell you, you don't want to touch that pan because that pan will burn you. I don't care. You can put on five oven mitts. It's going to burn you. You put on four oven mitts and you grab it and you get burned. Not my fault. I warned you. I gave you the knowledge. I told you to avoid it. You didn't avoid it. The burning wasn't my fault. That's what God does. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? Certainly not. Good heavens, are you stupid? No. That's the John Roberts translation of what Paul said there. But this is the key right after that. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's my whole premise with the question. If we are dead to sin, why are we still living in it? Paul says without a shadow of a doubt right there, we died to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over me. It does not own me. I can walk away from it anytime I want. Therefore, when God says, don't live in sin, I have a responsibility to do that, and I have the ability to do that. Amen. Verse 6, knowing this, another bit of knowledge. Verse 9, knowing that Christ. He keeps giving us examples, and the examples, when you sum them all up, After the first ten verses, Christ is our example. What He did, we should do. What did Christ do? He died to sin. Now, He did live a perfect life, but He lived a perfect life because He was the perfect man. He didn't live the perfect life because He was the second person of the Godhead, although He was the second person of the Godhead. He lived the perfect life because He was a human being the second Adam, 
created in the likeness of the first Adam before he sinned, and he walked that out perfectly because he listened to what God said in every situation, and he did what God said in every situation, and he never deviated. Now, were we capable of doing that? Theoretically, yes. Practically speaking, absolutely not. Because we had one disadvantage. We were born with the nature of sin in our fleshly bodies, And we had a natural father, Adam, who gave us the inheritance of his sin nature. And that sin nature tempted us in a way that Christ was never tempted. We have been tempted from the inside out. Jesus wasn't tempted that way. He was perfect on on the inside. He was the second person of the Godhead, uh, conformed and, and married to, unioned with, a perfect human spirit just like Adam had. Now, he was capable of sinning. And I will argue with a lot of people. I've had had theologians tell me Jesus could not sin. If he could not sin, then he wasn't tempted in all ways like I was. Because I am capable of sinning. If he was not capable of stepping out of that and committing sin, then his life was a fraud. I hate to be that blunt, but it was. So he had the capacity, had he made the choice, he could have stepped out and walked in that sin. He chose not to. was not easy. It took some some determination on his part to do that. But because he did that, when it came to time for him to make the sacrifice that he made, he voluntarily became sin. There is a difference between becoming sin and accepting that sin nature because of your actions and becoming sin because you just take on the entire sin of the world and you accept it. In fact, there are are several commentaries that I've read that says that when when that verse says he became sin, they're trying to point back to the sin offerings, the bullock, the, the, uh, uh, um, the scapegoats, And there was another sin offering that left me right now. But he was identifying with those offerings where the high priest laid hands on these animals and said, I am imparting the sins of this nation to you, and you take them all. Every sin committed by Israel in the past 365 days, I am imparting those by the laying on of my hands into you, and you're going to take them and go out. We're going to kill the bullock. We're going to kill whatever the other one was. Uh, The scapegoat, one of you we're going to kill. One of you, we're taking you out to the wilderness, and we're just going to let you die of thirst. Jesus took all of that sin. He became that sin. But then he died to that sin, meaning When the price for that sin was was paid, he stepped out of it, walked away clean as a whistle. Why? Because none of it was his. If there was one of those sins, the tiniest, tiniest infraction that, that, that could have hooked onto him, it would have latched onto him and he could not have broken it. Could not have broken it. But there was nothing that that sin had on him. So when the price was paid, he stepped out of that. He died to sin once for all. Now, I want to look at that phrase just for a second. He died to sin once, not for all time, which is usually how our brains will interpret that. 
He died to sin once for all. The all is all of us. That's what we are basing everything that we we have here. Look at verse 11, and you're still in Romans 6. Likewise, in the same way that we look at Jesus' example, what He did, we did. He says, in that same way, reckon yourselves. That literally, when you look at that in the Greek, that means to continually consider yourselves to be dead to sin. It's a choice. Verse 12 says, do not, therefore do not let sin reign. It's a choice. You have a choice whether you're going to let sin reign in your body or whether sin doesn't reign in your body. But you have that choice because there was a transfer that happened. There was a transaction that happened. When, when, when you were sinful, and you were, from your very birth onward, you were sinful because you inherited it from your father Adam. When Jesus went to the cross, even though He went to the cross 2,000 years before I was ever even thought of, except in His mind. But when He went to the cross, He paid the price for my sin. So even though I was born in sin, the price for that was already paid for. I now have to accept that transfer, that transaction. And when I do, I get all the benefits from that. I he kills my old spirit. I'm born again. I'm a brand new creation. Once I'm a brand new creation, then we come to this part. He says, look, because of what I did, because I've made you a brand new creation, now I expect you to consider yourself. I expect you to alter your thinking. Now, some of you, I know we, Gina and I were talking about this I don't know, within the last few weeks. Our son Ryan got spirit-filled when we were at Rhema. He was probably second grade. Started talking in tongues. Went to a youth or a, a elementary meeting at, during some service we were at. Came out and said, Mom, Dad, guess what? What? I got filled with the Spirit. Really? Yeah, and he started talking in tongues. Tiffany's standing there. She's four years old. She said, I want what brother's got. We said, okay. Okay. She starts talking in tongues. She's four years old. She has no idea what she just did. She has never known. He hardly, I, I don't know, well, he might remember doing something wrong. He might remember committing a sin. At six, seven years old, <laughs> ain't a lot you're going to accomplish on the sin side. He's not out drinking, smoking, carousing, you know, robbing banks, doing all the things we normally think of as sin. I, on the other hand, had a long history of sin. And even after I got saved, I had a long history of allowing sin to reign in my mortal body. So that when I finally got serious about following the Christian walk, every time I would try to walk it out, I had the devil sitting on my shoulder saying, it ain't going to work, it ain't going to work, it ain't going to work. Why? Well, look at your history. What are you? You're worthless. You can't, you can't do this. And he would talk to me and talk to me, and about half the time he would convince me, I can't do this. But notice verse 13. He says, he gives the negative, then the positive. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. He's talking about your members, that's your physical body. Then what do I do? 
Sorry, my notes are so thick here, I've lost my place. What do I do? Um, but present yourselves to God as being alive. See, I have a choice of presenting myself to the sin that my flesh understands, wants to do, has a great habit of falling into, or I have the choice of presenting myself to God. This is a present active participle. It's present tense, which means it's continuous action. Starts at a certain point and it can never end. And it is an active voice, which means it's me doing it. This is not something God will do for me. I have to do it. This is the reason, well, he, he goes on, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I have to make a conscious choice and say, okay, God, sin is speaking to me, but that's dead. I'm alive to you and <coughs> you're alive from the dead, so my members now are instruments of righteousness. Why? For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The reason I can do that is that's already a fact in my life. If that wasn't a fact in my life, I have no power to enforce what he's told me to declare. I just don't have it. All of those action verbs are present tense imperative mood, meaning the hearer of the command is commanded to actively and continuously do that. No, 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 reckon yourself, present yourself, do not present yourself. They're all your responsibility. They're all actions you can never stop on. It's a, it's a continuous thing. It's not just that you're dead to sin, but you are also alive to God. And sometimes we get the, fir the first, we forget the second. Amen? Now, can this be frustrating? Oh, yes. Paul starts in verse 7 with his frustrations. And he, if you, I'm not going to read down through it all, but when you get to verse 21, Romans 7, 21, this is Paul's declaration. Paul's laying this out. This is his theology. He's saying, look guys, I'm telling you, Jesus is the, is the power of God resulting in salvation to everyone that believes. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. I'm telling you, Abraham's our example. We are free from sin. It doesn't have any dominion over us. But I'm telling you, I've tried to walk it out, and I am a total screw-up at this. Verse 21, he sums it up. He said, I find then a law that evil is present in me. Paul is already born again at this point. This wasn't, he does not say here that evil used to be present in me, but now it's dead and it no longer is present. He does say, he's already said it, that evil has no dominion over me, but it's still present with me. The one who wills to do good. In my mind, I want to live for the Lord. And my flesh just controls everything about me. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. On the inside, I go to church. I hear stirring sermons. I'm thinking, yes, I can do that. Gina and I, the church we got married in, we had a preacher. He was a preacher's preacher. 
We would come out of there, man, I could run through a troop, I can leap a wall, I'm taking on the devil, we are going to, how in God's name are we going to do any of this? Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I got more frustrated, more frustrated, more frustrated because I got preached and enthusiastic to go do all of these things and nobody ever said, this is how you do it. Had a conversation, brief conversation with Kim this morning and I forget which one, it was Memphis. They're going through their homework and Memphis stopped her. I'm thinking, oh my God, if I had the revelation this boy has. He stopped her on a verse and said, wait a minute. Back up. What's this mean? If you have enough sense to ask that question, you've got your life in hand. Because that's where the whole thing comes to bear. When you ask the right questions. And if you don't ask the right questions, you're never going to get an answer. Never. Am I stirred up? Bless God, I could leap over a troop or through a wall or whatever. I don't know. Paul says here though, I delight in the law of God on the inside. I want to do this. Oh my God, I want to do this so badly. But I see another law in my members. This is his physical body. And it wars against the law of my mind. And it brings me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. I want to do what's right, but my flesh keeps dragging me. Reminded of the, the, the series of movies, The Godfather. And I remember with, with just three or four, it was one of them, one of the end ones, when The Godfather, Michael Corleone, was standing there and he's an old man and he said, every time I think I'm out... They suck me back in. That's exactly the thought here. Every time I think I'm out, it grabs me and sucks me back in. I thought I was done with this stuff. And yet it's here again. That's why every verb in chapter 6 is, is continuous. Do it now. Never quit. Because guess what? It never quits attacking you. It never gives up. And then Paul's sitting there, and you can just you can see the desperation here. Verse 24. Oh wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's desperate. He said, My God, how can I still be doing all of this? How can I ever get out of this? So then with the mind, I myself serve the, law, serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Is there an answer? Yeah. Remember, this wasn't written in chapter and verse. Paul goes immediately to the next thought. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You want to know what your answer is when your mindset says, Oh my God, who can deliver me from this? Jesus. There's no condemnation to those who are in. In. Not acquainted with. Not I know about Him. But He's my Savior. He is my... 
it's not, it's not by accident that he listed Christ before Jesus. And I, this is a general rule that's got a lot of exceptions, so don't run off too far with it. But when you see, in the, in the, in, particularly in the um, epistles, when you see Christ Jesus, that means that Paul, or the writer, is emphasizing the deity over the humanity. They're both. Jesus is both human and divine. But when you see it listed the other way, when it's Jesus Christ, he's, he's emphasizing the humanity over the deity. Here he's saying, I don't have to worry about this. There's no condemnation because I'm in the divine man, Jesus. His divinity sucked me up and made me one with him. The Holy Spirit now lives in me. This, the answer to that question in verse 25 or, or verse 24, I thank God through Jesus Christ. The, the, the answer is the who, not a what. It's not a skill set. It's a mindset. <clears throat> it's not what do I have to do to see this walked out. It's who do I have to live with to see this walked out. It's all in to Jesus. The war is in our minds. Now, we've seen this principle before, and this deal, we dealt with this when, we talked, when I talked about money many, many months ago. Matthew 6.21, Jesus Himself said this, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, He was specifically was talking about money there, but the principle works with anything that you treasure. Where you put your emphasis, where you put your value, that's where your heart will follow. You, you, you do not go or you do not put your treasure where your heart is. Your heart goes where your treasure is. The emphasis here isn't what, is the, what, what difference does that make? The difference is, is what are you leaning on? Are you leaning on the fact that, well, my heart is right before God? Well, then where's your treasure going? You haven't given it any place to go. If you put your treasure somewhere then your heart will follow it there. The action is, is with your treasure, not with your heart. Your heart's going to follow your treasure. 2 Corinthians 10 gives us, puts it in, in, in um, context. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not natural. But they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down, what? Arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's arguments that we are to cast. The, the, the um, strongholds that we have to fight are not principalities and powers and dominions that have these big castles in the sky. I, I, I was involved in a group that we were intercessors, and I learned a lot from that group. But there was a group of people that got, they got so weird out in here that they started renting airplanes so they could get closer to the heavenly so they'd have more authority over those demons and could pull those strongholds down. Well, there are some strongholds in the heavenly places, but the primary stronghold in heavenly places that you have to pull down is right between your ears. It's the thoughts. Let's read on. We're casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself 
against the knowledge of God. Let me add a phrase there. In your brain. <clears throat> Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The stronghold, the argument, or the thoughts that are <clears throat> in your mind. And being ready to punish all disobedience when the obedience is fulfilled. You have to tell your brain what it's going to think. And it's not just a matter of addressing your, your mind and saying, John, you are going to not think about this. I can, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I can tell you right now, don't think about dogs. What's, what's the picture you have in your brain right now? A dog that you know. I can tell you all day, quit thinking about the dog. Don't picture the dog. And every time I tell you don't picture the dog, the dog's picture flashes in your brain. Well, how do you take that thought captive? Well, I'm not thinking about that dog. Bless God, I cast that thing down. I stomp on you in the name of Jesus. Dog picture, dog, get out of my brain. And I'm still thinking about the dog. Well, I'm not thinking about alcohol. I'm not craving alcohol. You get under me, addiction. What are you going to think about? The addiction. And I don't care if the addiction's alcohol or heroin or pornography or whatever. The love of money, the love of sports, you name the addiction. And I know I threw sports in there. You go to any major city and you see where their biggest temple is. You walk downtown Indianapolis, where's our biggest temple? Lucas Oil Stadium. Ain't a church anywhere in the world can see what, what um, Lucas Oil Stadium conceit. Why? Because for the most part, the people in this region care more about football than they care about the gospel. I heard some, had somebody on Facebook this week said, I'm, t I'm tired of, of Christians supporting megachurches when they ought to be supporting the poor. It's like, where do you think most of the help for the poor come from? It comes from those big churches. That's just a fact. Black letter, it's a fact. Oh my, where'd I go? My point is, you don't just take authority over the negative, you have to insert the positive. You can't quit thinking on sin unless you start positively thinking about what the Word says. That's why I've said it before and I'll say it again. You need to find a scripture that answers the problem that you have. Do you have a problem with fear? Then find a list of scriptures that deal with fear. If nothing else, go through the Old Testament and find every scripture where you see an angelic being appear to a man. What's the first words out of their mouth every time? Fear not. Why? Because when they show up on the scene, your, your, your knees start to knock. Your bowels get a little loose and you think, oh my God, it's an angel. And you get afraid. And they say, hey, calm down. Calm down. I'm not here to get you. If I wanted to get you, you'd be God. You wouldn't have even known I was here. You'd have been dead before I got you. So calm down. Don't fear. Well, how do you not do that? Well, you listen to His words. You find the answer to your fear. Whatever you're fearing, God has an answer to it. Amen? So, 
2 Corinthians, we have to cast down every argument that exalts itself. We take every thought captive. This is not what I do, it's who I do. I do Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. It's a mindset, not a skill set. I don't have to learn how to walk this out. I do have to learn to walk it out. But I don't learn it as a mechanical rote thing. I learn it the same way I learn to get along with my wife. I just in the past couple of weeks, because we've been our lives have been crazy lately, we've had to eat out a lot more than we normally do. And I went to get some fish and um, I walked up to the counter and Gina said, Well, I you know, I don't really don't want all this junk. Just to ask, do they have onion rings? If they have onion rings, I want onion rings. So I walked up at the counter, I said, Do you have onion rings? She says, no, I wish we did. Used to have them. Used to have fried mushrooms, too, and I loved those. I don't know why we got rid of those. And I said, well, give me a minute. i got to call home. She said, why do you have to call home? I said, see that? Pointing to my cast. I said, I brought home French fries instead of onion rings last time. I ain't making that mistake a second time. That poor girl looked at me with the most pitiful look on her eyes, like, oh, my God, your wife broke your arm over onion rings. <clears throat> it's like, no, honey, I'm joking, I'm joking. No, that's, I just want to find out what she wants because that was her first choice. She doesn't want fries. Well, we have, to, we have to take that knowledge. I have learned. I could have made a decision. I probably, to be honest with you, I could have picked something off a menu that I knew. She's going to like this more than any of these others. But I have learned over 33, 30 six, five, 35 years of marriage. I have to calculate. Where are you, Aaron? You need to keep that, my, my, my number of years in your head. You're a mathematician. 35 years of marriage. I have learned she would rather be asked even if I know the answer. So I called her and asked her, even though I, pr- I knew pretty much once I saw the menu, I know she's going to want this instead. Or she's just going to say, I don't care, just, you know, give me an extra thing of slaw. When it gets old, we'll throw it away. You know. But I learned. Why? Because we're in relationship. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's why it's a who. That's why it's a mindset. I have to get the mind of Christ. And I do that by meditating on His Word. You want to... You wanna, you, I've got to be careful here. I really want to just get off and run down this rabbit trail, but I'll never come back. Let me, let me just suffice it this way. Do you want to have a happy marriage? If you do, the key to having a happy marriage is having a good relationship. Do you want to have a good relationship? Well, yeah. You cannot have a good relationship without good communication. And you cannot have good communication if you don't talk. And I know every, every man in the building just went, oh, my God. God, you said you wouldn't go there, and you went there. What are you thinking about? <clears throat> it's the truth. The, the, the root of every divorce that's ever happened is the hardness of heart over we grew apart. How did you grow apart? You quit doing the things that you did to start with. I'm going to leave that alone. How did you get into a relationship with Jesus? 
somebody who told you about the good things he does, and you saw it in his word, you had it, you got it, and you thought, wow, I'm excited. I love meeting new Christians. They just ooze love. Man, I'm not going to hell. I'm so excited. This is so great. And you think, wow, I hope you keep that enthusiasm for the next week because most people lose it after the second week. Why do they lose it? Because they depend on, or on a, an event they had once in their life. It's the old joke. Honey, I don't know why you spend so much time telling me that I don't tell you I loved you. I told you I loved you the night we got engaged and I have not changed my mind. Lots of luck, unless she's really determined to make to stay in that marriage. It ain't going to work. I, I, I was talking when Marge and I were coming in. I was talking about my son. He just transitioned over into the ministry from making oodles and gobs of money to making a little bit of money. And for me, that's a big deal because I'm, I'm concerned that, you know, making a financial transition is not easy when you make it down. You know, I had one advantage of being in the ministry. I started in the ministry really young, and I never had any. So, you know, when, you, when you've only earned nickels and dimes, you just figure that's normal. When you've earned, you know, $100 bills and suddenly you're making nickels and dimes, it's like, oh, my God, what happened? But in, in the course of our conversation, I told her, I said, we were discussing that and, and the death of my father and a lot of different things. But I made the observation that it is extremely important for a son to hear from his father, I am proud of you. Now, it, it works with mothers and daughters, too. I don't understand mothers and daughters, don't even want to try. I've tried, I got lost in that swamp once and I thought I'd drown before I ever got out. I understand fathers and sons. And I'm telling you, it's the same thing. I need to hear from my father. I'm proud of you, son. I'm proud of what you're doing. But if the only relationship I have with my heavenly father is the relationship that I gain the day I got saved, that's, that's just not enough. I need to hear it today. I need to hear it tomorrow. I need to hear daily, moment from moment to moment to moment to moment. Son, I'm proud of you. You are doing well. Keep going. You can do this. And you know when I need to hear that the most? When I'm four feet under the muck and the mire. When I didn't, I'm not just in the pig pen. I dove down underneath. I found the deep pit and I got under it. And I'm just sitting there holding my breath, hoping that I'm not going to breathe this this pig manure and I come out of it just covered and believe me I, I grew up on a farm I can tell you the difference between cow manure horse manure chicken manure and hog manure and ain't none of them as bad as hogs that's the nastiest stuff that ever 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 came out of any animal in the universe and yet I can be in the midst of that and my father will look down to me if I have a conversation with him and he will say I'm proud of you son how can he be proud of me? I'm covered with all this. I'm in the midst of sin. Because he doesn't look at my sin. He looks at the real me. And his only request is, step up out of that and let me clean you up. But most of us sit there and heap a few more piles on us and say, oh, woe is me. I am such a sinner. I am so lousy. Colossians 3.2 
Set your mind on things above. When you're at the lowest, you've got to say, I don't care if I'm sitting in the middle of a hog pen. I don't care if I'm covered in, in manure. God loves me. Jesus loves me. He cleansed me. And suddenly you're going to find yourself starting to elevate up out of that manure. And suddenly you're going to find yourself that it's, it's just not sticking. It's like that, <coughs> that, uh, those commercials on TV. Would to God they were true. Well, I, look at this. You just pour that burnt uh, cheese right out of that pan and blow on it and every bit of trash and grease and everything just comes right off that pan. It's magic. It cleans itself. Well, we're, we have a slicker coating to sin than that. All you've got to do is set your mind on things above. Why? For you died and your life is hidden in Christ. When you start committing your thoughts to that, it doesn't matter that you're down under the pit. You're going to start to come out. And don't lament over, but you don't know what I did. You don't know how many times I've fallen. I don't care. It doesn't matter. If your heart is beating, there's time to repent. And you repent by setting your, th your mind on the things. The attitude of your heart will reflect the activity of your mind. If you want your mind to stop, if you want to stop being sin conscious, stop thinking about sin. How do I stop thinking about sin? That's the point. I can't stop. You stop thinking about sin by thinking about righteousness. You find the answer. Start with Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Guess what? I'm in Him. Well, it says right after that, brother, it says, who do not walk according to the flesh. And I know you've been walking according to the flesh. That's not a condition. That's a fact of the people who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you do not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Well, that doesn't make sense. Welcome to the spiritual world of Christ Jesus. He takes the, 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 the opposite. It's like opposite world. It really is. You, he takes your sins and, and says, no, you don't sin. You haven't sinned. All I see is, is, is perfection. All I see is cleansing. And you say, but Lord, I sinned. Quit telling me that. I don't see you as a sinner. I see you as a saint. Why don't you get in line with my thinking? Why don't you line up with how I see you? Because it's not the facts that I see on the ground. Well, if we go by the facts that I saw on the ground, I'm going to have to let you go to hell, son, because the facts are you still sinned. Well, yeah, but I said you were my Lord, and I heard you. And I took you out of that sin and put you in me. So make that your thought process. When you're in the midst of that sin, in that sin you have to reach over and say, no, that's not, that's not me anymore. Verse 5 in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. It's not that because they live in the flesh, they're setting their minds on the flesh. It's the reverse. They've set their minds on the flesh, then their, mind, their bodies and their actions are following where they set their minds. 
All they think about is that next drink. All they think about is that next high. All they think about is that next ball game. What's so-and-so going to do? Who cares? Now, I'm not, I'm not against sports. Sports have a lot of good things. But if you know more about the NFL than you know about Romans, you've got a problem. And you need to put the NFL a little lower than Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and Corinthians and all the rest of the New Testament. Amen? It's not, it's not whether you follow them. It's are you, where do you put them? Are they your treasure? Because, you know, I, I love a good ball game. I, I've said, somebody said, why don't you have any signatures on your cast? Well, I got it green. I keep looking for a green bake decal to put on here, but I can't find one. I don't think they allow them in Indianapolis. All they keep saying, well, I got a Colts. But I say, no, I'm not going to defile myself. I just soon get a, a, a star of a satanic star tattooed to my chest. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> I have to set my mind on the things above. Then I will follow the things above. Proverbs 4.23 says it, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Now, how do I do this? I'm going to try to sum this up in the next five minutes, and I'm going to do it by looking at the... Um, um, armor. But I want you to promise me this, and I know that I'm going to ask something that's almost impossible. People study the armor, and they, they get the armor, and when my kids were little, we, we, you know, we did it all the time. All right, let's put our armor on. We'd shot our feet. We'd put our helmets on. We'd put the breastplate. We'd put the belt of truth on. We'd get our sword. We'd pick up our shield. We had our armor on. That's not bad with kids, you know, in fact, one summer we were off on vacation. Gina had a little Bible study with all of our nieces and nephews. And with seven boys in that group, you can guess the, the only thing, piece of armor they wanted to cut out were swords. And they went at it immediately with the swords, forgot the, the shield. You know, Some of them wished they'd had a shield after a little while. But sometimes we get caught up in the analogy, and that's all the, the, the um, armor is. It's an analogy. And we miss the substance. So I want to focus in on this substance. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul starts here, and this is his general pattern. Ephesians chapter 1 through like the, almost the end of, of chapter 3, he goes through the believer standing in grace. He goes through everything that Jesus did for you, put in you at the moment of the new birth. Great place to just live. Chapter 4 through verse 17 of chapter 5, he goes through the walk and the service of the believer. Because I did all of this, this is what I expect you to do. And then the conclusion starts here, and I'm in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He said, finally, brethren, after all of this, after everything that Jesus did for you, after everything I've told you I want you to do, this is my last thought. Be strong in the Lord. Your strength is a who, not a what. It's not what you do, it's whose you are. You have to keep that in mind. Even in the midst of doing all of the stuff, if you don't keep yourself constantly remembered, it's not my walk that's important, it's who's empowering my walk. 
then you'll get over in doing it for the wrong reason and you'll get caught up in the flesh and it'll just be, look at me, I got my row of buttons on my, on my lapel of my suit and I am something else and I'll, well, I may not cast that crown before Jesus because that's mine and I'm proud of it. No, it's all Him. But we have to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. His wiles are controlling your thoughts. He wants to get you over thinking about all that you've done, all that you've done wrong, all the times you've sinned, all the places where you cannot succeed. And if He can keep your mind focused on that, He's got you. And you'll never get out. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wicked hosts of, of, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13, Therefore, because of that, because we're not fighting flesh and blood, because we're fighting enemies from hell, I want you to take up the entire armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That's my question right there. Have I done all? And if you can tell me in all honesty, I've done everything I know to do. I've done everything that there is to do. I'm going to tell you, if you tell me that you've done everything there is to do, you're deceived. You'll never do everything. If you tell me that you've done everything you know to do, I'll say, well, that's probably right. But do you know everything He asked you to do? The problem is we may not know all of that. But once I have done everything I know to do, then I, all, all the, only, the only choice I've got at that point is just stand. I've got to stand and fight. But I fight having girded my waist with truth. Remember, Jesus said, my word is truth. And if you abide in my word, and my word abides in you, I will set you free. That's the root. That's, that's everything that we do. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You're not, when you put on the breastplate of righteousness, you are not making yourself righteous. You are saying, I am righteous because Jesus is righteous. Because my, the, that belt of truth is His Word. Remember, Paul back in Romans 1, he referred back to Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. I'm referring back to some verse that I have in my mind that I know where it is, I can tell you where it is, that I am the very righteousness of God in Christ. And I am in Christ. First I've got to determine I am in Christ, and if I am in Christ, then I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Then my breastplate is on. But when I'm not feeling very righteous, then I have to take my brain and say, quit thinking about the sin you just committed. Start declaring, John, you are in Christ. John, you have put on righteousness because you are righteous. Then my chest is shod with the, with, with the righteousness of God in, in Christ. 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There is no war between me and God. I can stand. When he says to do all and just stand, I can stand because I'm at peace with God. Above all, take the shield of faith. 
wait a minute, I don't know that I have faith. Well, go over to Romans. He says, I've given you all faith. Everyone has been given the measure of faith. And with that, I'm going to quench all these fiery darts. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. I've got to take His Word, which is the sword of the Spirit, and I've got to change my thinking. That's what that helmet of salvation does. It changes how you see yourself, how you see the world, and your position in the world. And then I have to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me that utterance may be given to me, so on and so forth. His point there at the end, I have to continually pray this out. I have to speak to my own mind, and I have to pray this continually. Lord, I thank you. I don't care what my, what my body says. I don't care what my actions say. You said I'm righteous. You said I'm holy. You said I'm free of addiction. I'm not addicted to sin. I'm not addicted to anything. Well, but your body's craving it. Who cares? My body craves all kinds of things. Doesn't mean it's me. This, this is my in, these are my instruments. That's like a dentist saying, well, you know, I always inflict pain. Why do you always inflict pain? Because that, that drill hurts. You're a drill? Well, no, it's one of the instruments I use. Well, that's not you. An instrument is not you. And if it's not, if it's not you, don't claim it. This fleshly body is not me. It's just an instrument that I need to interact with other people in this planet. And when this one finally wears out, God will say, well, come on home. I'll have to make somebody new to take your place. Amen? So, the question. If I'm dead to sin, why do I sin so much? Because you haven't taken every thought captive. Because you, don't, you haven't uh, um, put first the Word of God in your own mind. The, f- the first sermon I have to preach, the most important sermon that I preach, I have to preach to myself. Because the facts come down. I used to have a saying with several pastors that I, I fellowshiped with. And, well, we had several. One of them was when we would go, you'd get ready to go to your uh, uh, pulpit, I'd always say, well, give them heaven. Well, what else am I going to give them? Well, I guess I could give them hell, but I really don't want you to pick that up. Most of you have enough hell in your life already. So I want to give you heaven. But the other thing was, give them what you got. If I ain't got it, I can't preach it. I can't live it. That's why people, and I've heard it say, I, I, I argued with one family member, I can't, I don't know how many times I've argued with them, and they say, well, I don't go to church for one reason. Well, what's that reason? It's full of hypocrites. And it's like, well, yeah, come on down, you'd fit. I didn't like that answer. But the point is, I, I can only give you what I have received. Otherwise, I'm just spouting words. That's a difference between an anointing and not being anointed. Have you ever wondered why when you witness to people, maybe your words aren't anointed? You have to ask yourself, am I living this out? 
well, then I'm not preaching to anybody until I start living it out. No, you start where you are. You, you preach out the little bit that you have and let God anoint it, and as he anoints it, you'll be, he'll, you can use that anointing to, to get more. And you just keep preaching. As you get revelation, you preach a little more and you preach a little more. <clears throat> Amen? Now, let me, let me be very clear. Our, our preaching doesn't ex- consist of, you got to live this way or you're going to hell. Believe me, you don't have to convince sinners that they're going to hell. Most of them are more aware of themselves that they're going to hell than you have to tell them. I have a friend that I used to teach with. She's, she's in a kind of public spat with her brother. Her father was a pastor. They're both PKs. Her brother hates his mom and dad, hates his sister, hates everything Christian. He's, he is a, a, a ultra, ultra, ultra left-wing radio announcer in some small marketplace somewhere in the southwest. And he is the most anti-Christian, anti-conservative, anti-everything that might speak of righteousness. He hates anybody that speaks of righteousness. And I can tell you exactly why he has that attitude. Because he's mad at his dad. He didn't understand the message. He got preached to instead of encouraged to live it. He got preached at for not living it. And it got to a point with him that it broke him and he turned angrily and he hates the very thing that could be his answer. Though we don't preach at people, you got to get saved. we got to preach to people, Jesus loves you. And he wants to deliver you from every problem you have. That's why we're called to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to give water to the thirsty. Why? Because you've got to meet the need. When you meet the need, whether it's physical or spiritual, then you can reach the person. Amen? Now, this sermon to you still applies. You've already had your needs met. If you're saved and looking around this room, I have no doubt. We've all, I've had enough altar calls. I'm not going to give an altar call today. If you're not saved, come up on up here. We'll, we'll get you saved. But I have no doubt that you all are saved. So the question for us is not, well, can I live this perfectly so I can preach it perfectly? No. The question for us is, am I going to set my mind on things above and not beneath? Am I going to take every thought captive? Well, don't get condemned when 8 o'clock comes around the night and you've been an, a, a complete failure at it today. Amen? Don't get discouraged. It starts little and it grows, but it grows exponentially. And I'll let Aaron explain what exponential means. Now, exponential means it gets faster. The longer it goes, the, the bigger it gets and the faster it gets there. It, it, this starts small and you have to start small. You start with the thing that dogs you the worst, the most. And you start, instead of not thinking about that, you replace that thought. You get in your Bible, you get a smartphone, if you can get a hold of one, and you find a scripture that answers that problem. And you just hit that one problem. And you stay on it, and you stay on it, and you stay on it, and you stay on it until you start to see a little bit of light. You start to get a little bit of revelation. And you start to get a little bit of control over that part of your flesh. And then you keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going. And as you do that, you'll start finding that there are other things that God starts sharing with you about.
He starts saying, okay, you got a little light here. Let me, let me expand that light out a little bit here. Let's start working on this one too. He's not going to clean you up overnight. And I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years and you know I only got three years left. Start, start cleaning up. Start cleaning up. Amen? Your salvation may not depend on that cleaning up, but how many you take with you does depend on that. How well God receives you, whether He receives you, well done, my good and faithful servant, or come on in, you made it. Barely, but you made it. Amen? There's more to life than just getting to heaven. There's getting to heaven with having God be able to, to look at you and say, man, you did a great job. That's what I'm looking for. Amen? Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.